I want to also welcome you and wish you happy Father's Day. Happy Father's Day to all of you. It is, it's a blessing, and I don't, uh, I don't know if many pastors get to have their uh, daughter baptized on Father's Day. So thank you for being present, uh, present with me, uh, being a loving congregation to me. My name is Joseph Bianca. I'm an assistant pastor at City Reformed. If you're new here, I want to welcome you in the name of Christ. We're glad that you're with us. Please stay around afterwards, and we'll get to know you uh, more. We've been preaching through Nehemiah. Nehemiah, and we're in chapter 6 today, uh, page 1, or sorry, page 7 of your bulletin. Uh, And let me just catch you up briefly about what's been happening with Nehemiah. Um, So remember that Nehemiah was the cupbearer to King Artaxerxes of Persia. So he's a big deal, Artaxerxes of Persia, very powerful king. Uh, Nehemiah found favor in the eyes of King Artaxerxes and actually got Artaxerxes to give him supplies and permission to rebuild the wall of Jerusalem. Uh, There are three main enemies that we see throughout uh, the whole book of Nehemiah, and they're in verse 1 of our text, Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem, and they're all leaders of surrounding provinces, uh, and they are taking this rebuilding campaign as a, a threat against them. They're not happy that Nehemiah is rebuilding These men have been a great source of irritation in Nehemiah. I would liken them to a warble. Do you know what a warble is? A warble is a larva of a fly, and it becomes a worm and buries in the skin. Those are the enemies of Nehemiah. Nehemiah's been dealing uh, with their threats. I want you to remember chapter 4, Nehemiah and God's people worked so hard that Nehemiah had to tell them to hold a spear in their one hand and work with the other hand throughout the night. Then in chapter five, Nehemiah gives up his own food and provision for the people of Israel to keep working. And now chapter six, these enemies are giving their final attempt to break through the skin. Let me read this word and our response will be thanks be to God. Page seven, Nehemiah six, beginning in verse one. Now in Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem, the Arab and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall, and that there was no breach left in it, although up to that time I had not set up the door and the gates. Sanballat and Geshem sent to me, saying, Come and let us meet together at Hakafarim in the plain of Anno. But they intended to do me harm, and I sent messengers to them, saying, I am doing a great work, and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? And they sent to me four times in this way, and I answered them in the same manner. In the same way, when Sanballat for the fifth time sent his servant to me with an open letter in his hand, and it was written, it is reported among the nations, and Geshem also says it, that you and the Jews intend to rebel, that is why you are building the wall. And according to these reports, you wish to become their king. And you also set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem. There is a king in Judah, and now the king will hear these reports. So come, and let us take counsel together. And then I sent to him, saying, No such things as you, have been, as you say have been done, for you are inventing them out of your own mind. For they all wanted to frighten us, thinking, Their hands will drop from the work, and it will not be done. But now, O oh God, strengthen my hands." Now when I went into the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, son of Mehetabel, 
who was confined to his home, he said, let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple for they are coming to kill you. They are coming to kill you by night. But I said, should such a man as I run away? And what man such as I could go into the temple and live? I will not go in. And I understood and saw that God had not sent him, but he had pronounced the prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sambalot had hired him. For this purpose he was hired, that I should be afraid and act in this way and sin. And so they, gave, and so they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. Remember Tobiah and Sanballat, O oh my God, according to these things that they did, and also the prophetess Noadiah, and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month, Elul, in 52 days. When all of our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem. For they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. Moreover, in those days, the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah, and Tobiah's letters came to them, for many in Judah were bound by oath to him, because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Ara, and his son Jehonan had taken the daughter of Meshulam, the daughter of Berechiah, as his wife. Also they spoke of his good deeds in my presence and reported my words to him, and Tobiah sent letters to make me afraid. This is the word of the Lord. Have you ever experienced crippling fear? Not just fear in general, but crippling fear. I mean, fear that grips you and keeps you from doing whatever it is that you're trying to do. I think many of us have experienced this, but some of you might say no to that question. So for the other half, let me ask you this. Have you experienced overwhelming confidence? We might call it overconfidence, the kind where you're so confident you have no idea how arrogant you're being. You just can't see yourself. Someone has to tell you. I think all of us seem to bounce back and forth like ping pong balls as Christians between these ideas of fear and overconfidence. There are two of the things I think Christians wrestle most with and all throughout the Bible and specifically here in Nehemiah we see enemies trying to elicit fear in Nehemiah Fear to stop the work. The word fear is repeated after the end of each paragraph in this chapter. Verse 9, verse 14, verse 19. And then when God wins, in verse 16, the enemies become afraid. We also see confidence in Nehemiah. And it's not an overconfidence. It's not an ungodly confidence. It's not a confidence in himself. It is a confidence in the help of the Lord. The help of the Lord. So how do we keep from being these ping pong balls going back and forth between fear over confidence? The help of God. The help of God. And today, years after Nehemiah, we receive the help of God through the work of Christ. And I want to unpack that. In my first two points, we're going to look at the two kinds of fears that we see come up for Nehemiah. First is fear of man. 
Second is a fear that leads to sin. And then thirdly, we're going to look at the confidence we have through God's help. So let's look first at fear of man. Fear of man. There are two kinds of sub-fears that fall under this umbrella of fear of man. The first is a fear to distraction, a fear to distraction, and the second is a fear of action. We see the distraction first, it's very clear, beginning verse 1, Nehemiah and the Israelites, they almost finished the wall, all but the doors and the gates, enough that the enemies of Sanballat and Geshem, these enemies Sanballat and Geshem, send to him to see if they can distract him to keep him from finishing the work. And then he responds, and then in verse 3, he, writes, he sends a question back. He says, I'm not coming down. Why should I come down to you? Verses 4 to 5, four times he gets messengers sent back to him. And then the fifth time, he gets a letter sent back. And I'll take up the letter in a minute. But first, Nehemiah does not allow himself to get distracted from kingdom building. He does not allow himself to get distracted. So not only does he see the distraction and keep himself from the distraction, he gets his enemies to waste time. Precious time he needs to finish the wall. Four or five times these messengers are going back and forth. This isn't email. It takes time. It kind of reminds me of, uh, have you seen this on YouTube? People that telemarketers will call someone and instead of hanging up on them, uh, the person will waste the time of the telemarketer by making up stuff. I do not recommend that you uh, do that, by the way. That is not a Christian thing to do. Um, but for Nehemiah, it bought him valuable time to get done what he needed to get done. And I think it's worth pausing just for a minute to think about distractions, and particularly distractions that keep us from ministry. I think some of these can be fear-based. There's often a fear of missing out, but they're not necessarily tied to fear, but they are distractions from the work of God. You know, we have far more distractions today than they did in 400 B.C. We have a lot. Let me ask you this. What distracts you? Particularly from the work of God, from ministry. What do I mean by ministry? I mean a whole broad range of things. From raising your family in the Lord, to participating in church, to time spent in prayer and fellowship, to time taking your wife out to minister to her, to caring for your parents, all kinds of things. What keeps you from time with the Lord, from time with his saints and his people, time teaching your children about Jesus? What is that distraction for you? You know, these three, four, or five times his enemies are coming at him in almost a nagging way. I want to offer just an, a suggestion of something I think that nags at us, that keeps us often distracted, but it could be many things. Our cell phones, they beep, they buzz, they ring, they ding, and they don't stop. They're addictive. And you know, sometimes it's stuff that we have to do on our cell phone, so I don't want you to hear what I'm not saying, but sometimes they are a distraction. I am not anti-technology, I'm not a Luddite, I like technology, but I say that to you because I see it in myself. 
Do you know what confronts my heart when I take an inventory of the distractions that keep me from ministry? That God has moved in priority under chess.com sometimes in my life. I'm just being honest with you. You know, there's a, there's a fear tied to distraction. In Nehemiah's case, it was fear of man, fear from the pressure of these surrounding governors who are seeking to harm him, the text says. And I want to speak truth to you a minute about your distractions, whatever they are for you, that Nehemiah knew. They harm you. They harm you. The dings, the bops, the beeps. The pressure to respond to email quickly, to post something online. The fear of missing out. It harms you. Nehemiah saw the harm distraction would bring from the work of God and he said no. Now the enemies, they up the ante. After he says no, they send a letter threatening him with a lie, verses six to eight, basically saying, we think you're building this wall to rebel to set up a king for yourself and all these other people, by the way, agree with us. And then Nehemiah says, verse eight, you are inventing those things out of your mind. It's a great response. In verse nine, he tells us, us. They wanted to frighten us thinking their hands will drop from the work and it will not be done, but now, O oh God, strengthen my hands. The second fear under this umbrella of fear of man is fear of action. Fear of action. The enemies think if they can threaten Nehemiah with a lie, with a public letter, so that everyone can hear, the people will be afraid and their hands will stop acting. They'll drop from their work. They'll become weak. In Hebrew, this uh, phrase is actually an idiom. This idea of the hands weakening, and that's why Nehemiah prays, oh God, strengthen my hands. Keep me acting. Don't let me stop. One of the biggest ways the enemy will try to get at you is to put doubt in your mind that what you're doing is not worth doing. To keep you from ministry. To keep you from action. This is a, actually a big part of my story when I was considering the pastorate. Um, I had felt called to be a pastor since I became a believer in seventh grade. But growing up, I, I began to look at my sin throughout high school and into college, my actions, even my intelligence. And I began to say to myself, You're not good enough. You're not smart enough. You're too prideful to be a pastor. And so I let it go. I let the calling go. It wasn't until a couple years after college that I had church members and friends encouraging me to be a pastor. Um, but particularly, I had a friend's father challenge me. He said, if you could do anything without restriction, what would you do? And I said, I would be a pastor. And it was actually in prayer that it hit me if I thought I was good enough, if I thought I was smart enough, or humble enough, I should probably not be a pastor. I let a deep lie seat in my heart for years that kept me from action, that pastors have to be this good or this smart or this competent. And that lie kept me from action. Now God overcame that because I'm standing here, a pastor, but for years I let that lie keep me from action. 
How about you? Where are you not doing ministry because you think you are not good enough or strong enough or smart enough or humble enough or you're too prideful or wise enough? I will tell you the truth. You are not. You're not. I'm not. Nehemiah was not strong enough. But our God is strong enough. So my encouragement to you is to pray with Nehemiah, oh God, strengthen my hands. If that's not your prayer, you may be allowing fear to keep you from acting in ministry. Also, I want to just make a quick note. I recognize that there are various kinds of ministries, and so we're here to help you think through those things. We're here to help you. The next fear that Nehemiah encounters is a fear that leads to sin, and this is my second point, a fear that leads to sin. Verse 10, in comes Shemaiah. Shemaiah, we don't know too much about him. He might have been a priest. He might have been a prophet. Uh, Either way, he has come to trick Nehemiah. Why is Shemaiah coming to or confined to his home, most likely the best interpretation is not that he is lame, not that he is sick, but that he has confined himself at his home as a ruse to trick Nehemiah into thinking their lives are at stake, that they're at risk. So look, he's certainly not lame or sick, and the reason is because verse 10, it says, let us meet together in the house of the Lord. So unless Nehemiah is going to carry Shemaiah as he flees for his life into the house of the Lord, most likely Shemaiah is just staging a, an attack for Nehemiah. He tells Nehemiah, they're coming to kill you. They are coming to kill you by night. Now look, this would be scary. You have a man of God come to you, a supposed man of God come to you and say, you better take shelter in the temple. They're coming to kill you. They're coming to kill you by night. But Nehemiah, he knows his Bible. Now, I had to do some serious exegetical work here, but the word in Hebrew for house of the Lord is often used nearly synonymously uh, with the word in Hebrew for temple. It meant either the holy place where only the priest could go, or it was a reference to the holy of holies where only the high priest could go. So a commentator I read wrote this. He said, Shemaiah could legitimately have proposed that Nehemiah take refuge in the temple area at the altar of asylum, which is outside these places, but not the temple or the house of the Lord. The point being, Nehemiah knew his Bible. He knew he was not allowed there, that only a priest was allowed in that part of the temple. And if Nehemiah went in, he would die. But here, this so-called priest says, Nehemiah, go hide in the temple. So therefore, Nehemiah says, verse 12, I understood and saw that God had not sent him. But he had pronounced the prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sambalot had hired him. For this purpose he was hired, that I should be afraid and act in this way in sin and so they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. Nehemiah saw through the conspiracy because he knew the word of God, that he should not enter this place. And I want to focus on these words for a second, that I should be afraid and act in this way and sin. There is a kind of fear that leads to sin 
there are three things that we can learn from Nehemiah. The first, and it's very simple, but it's very important, is that you will know the fear that leads to sin in your life if you know the word of God. You will be able to call out fear that leads to sin in your life if you know the word of God. When you come across enemies who desire to lead you into sin, whatever that is in your life, how will you resist if you don't know it's sin? Let me challenge you with this. If you call yourself a Christian but you do not know the word of God, you are like a man stumbling around in the dark in a minefield. Second, and this is similar to the first, you will know a false teacher if you know the word of God. One thing I love about being Presbyterian is that we make decisions together as a session. The elders who lead this church, we call it the wisdom of the session. And that means that in, in the teaching, in the ministry of the church, there is always a check and a balance to what is going on in the church. There's not just one man in charge. There is a session of elders There's a whole session made up of mature men to lead God's church. But even more than this, imagine that all the session went astray, all at once. We are held in check by the word of God, by the people of God. If you know the word of God. I was just teaching a membership class to a new Christian and explaining that even as a member, she holds us accountable to the word of God. But how do you hold us accountable if you don't know it? Third, there are enemies in this world who will intimidate you with fear to lead you directly into rebellion, into sin. You know, I grieve the pressure that it will be on my children as they grow up. I grieve it. You know, I'm in the older side of millennials, and even for us, the internet came out, you know, around when I was like eight or ten Um, But even then, it was hard. It was hard. It was hard growing up with all of the pressures of the new technology and all of the voices that were in our ears. But it will be even harder for our children. The pressure is immense. The pressure of advertisements, the pressure of the voices, the podcasts, all coming at you all at once. I want to talk particularly to children and to college students just for a minute. I want to speak directly to you. There is a fear you face if you go against the majority opinion. There's a fear you face when you are the one dissenting voice. That fear is a fear of rejection. Perhaps what will my friends think of me if I believe in a biblical view of sexuality? And not just that, but if I call other views of sexuality sinful. What will my friends think if I go home early from a party or don't attend that one? What will my friends think if I say, I believe in Christ alone? Period. Children and college students, the only way you will make it through these things is if you have confidence in the word of God. There is a, a time when some ideas of the Bible are appealing to Americans in general, right? We all love the idea that God is love. 
We're all on board with that one. But very few Americans will like the idea that you are saved exclusively through Christ alone. And yet that is what the word of God says. Fourthly, what do we do with these people? How do we interact? What does Nehemiah do? Verse 14, he says, Remember Tobiah and Sanballat, oh my God. And then he prays for the prophetess Noadiah and the prophets who wanted to make him afraid. We ask God to deal with our enemies. We pray for these people fervently. Now Jesus expanded this concept of praying for our enemies. We read it in our call to confession. We don't just pray for justice, that God would come down and smite them. We do pray for justice, but not just justice. We pray for their souls. That we who know the love and the forgiveness of Christ, we pray that they too would know the love and the forgiveness of Christ. We pray for their faith. We pray for their families. We pray for the hurts in their lives. We love our enemies. Do you pray for your enemies? Now, if you've been following me up to this point, you should be asking a question, and you should feel a pressure. How do I do this? You just gave me a lot of things to do. How can I be kept from fear of man? How can I be kept from a fear that leads to sin? Where does Nehemiah get his confidence? Let's look at that. This is my third point. Verse 15, the wall is finished on the 25th day of Elul, which would have been October, if you're interested. God's people worked hard. Remember they had, in previous chapters, a spear in one hand, a shovel in the other. Constant threats, but they finished the wall. And some commentators estimate that the work they did should have taken them over two years. That they did in 52 days. What's even more remarkable as I was studying this is the archaeological evidence of the fast construction of this wall. They've discovered the wall intact, repaired, but done in a way that it's very rough. Showing the fast construction as if it was built in a hurry. So even after finishing the wall, Nehemiah still has enemies within the walls. Verse 18 tells us that many from Judah, that's the people of God, were bound by oath to Tobias, that's his enemy. These people in Judah were allied through, to his enemy through marriage. Yet verse 16, when these enemies saw the wall finished, the text says they were afraid. And they fell greatly in their own esteem, for they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. The NIV translates this this way. They were afraid and they lost their self-confidence. So finally, these enemies who taunt and jeer and try to burrow like warbles into the skin of Nehemiah, they are the ones afraid. They lose their confidence. I want us to notice something very important, however, in this text. In verse 16, the nations did not perceive the people as great. They did not perceive Nehemiah as great. The text says they perceived that the work had been accomplished with the help of our God. They perceived their God as great. You know, in some ways, this win here in the Bible reminds me of a game. You could pick any sport, really, maybe tennis tennis match. You know, you have two men in a tennis match. One thinks he's winning, or he thinks he's confident, and then the other one ends up winning. 
what happens to the confidence of the one who wins? It goes up. What happens to the confidence of the one who loses? It goes down. Now, if this were just a tennis match, you would reward the winner. But who is the winner in this story? It is not Nehemiah. It is God. God is the hero. God is the victor. And there's something we can learn here that's very valuable about Christian confidence that keeps us from fear. And You know, I've wrestled with this idea since I was a child with the question about the source of confidence that I should have. Is Christian confidence through one's ability? Is confidence in himself? Is it simply a power of thought? Or if I believe hard enough, is that my confidence? You know, all these ideas, they work to a degree, um, but ultimately they will fail. They will fail. Confidence in yourself only works until you actually meet a task that you cannot handle. Until an injury takes you out or a tragedy strikes. I used to place my confidence in myself and I didn't care what anyone thought. And then I became a believer. God softened my heart and all of a sudden I couldn't just do whatever I wanted to do. I began to care a lot about how people felt. And you know what, at first it felt crushing. I cared so much when my friend was sad or when my brother was mad at me or when tragedy struck a friend or a neighbor. And you know, C.S. Lewis was actually very helpful to me on this point. I put this quote in the beginning of your bulletin and you can turn to it. It's on the inside cover. C.S. Lewis says this, he says, the real black diabolical pride The black diabolical pride comes when you look down on others so much that you do not care what they think of you. Now, of course, it is very right and often our duty not to care what people think of us. If we do so for the right reason, namely, because we care so incomparably more what God thinks. You see, when I first became a Christian, God softened my heart and all the weight of humanity fell on me. But then he began to teach me what the help of God looks like. And this is what it looked like for Nehemiah, that he cared incomparably more what God thought. You see, there's a false dichotomy that can exist in the life of every Christian, and it goes like this. If I work hard, and I mean really hard, and we have a lot of hard workers in our church, then was it me who did it, or did God do it? Was it my strength Or was it God's strength? And the answer is this. Not only could you not have done it without the help of God, you could not have lifted your little finger. You could not take the next breath that you were about to take without the help of God. And yet, in another sense, did Nehemiah and God's people work really, really hard? They did. But when it was all over, who gets the glory? God. God. Nehemiah cared incomparably more what God thinks, and he worked incomparably harder than he could have worked without God's strength. How about you? Do you care incomparably more 
what God thinks? Do you care incomparably more about what God thinks when you're at work, when you're on a date, when you're tired of being single, when you're tired of being married? And I'll tell you the answer. Of course you don't. Of course you don't. I don't either. We fail all the, con- the time to live up to this kind of hard work and dependence on God, so what do we do? Let me end with this. Nehemiah was a good example, but he points to a great example. Nehemiah finished the wall. Christ Jesus finished the work. What were the last words that Jesus said as he hung on the cross in John 19? Let me read them for you. So when he had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. Bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. It is finished. The work is finished. Do you know what that means? It means while Nehemiah was doing a physical work, Jesus Christ was doing a cosmic work. While Jesus calls you and I to do the work of his kingdom, Jesus was doing an ultimate work, and the work he did was to make up for every misstep, every mistake, even the direct rebellion that he knew we would commit every sin. You see, God knows you're afraid. God knows that you're weak. He knows I'm weak. He knows you have more work than you can handle. He knows the pressure of the words. When I have to stand up here and say things to you like, don't fear man, prioritize time with God, keep from distractions, lead your family well, read God's word, resist the pressures of society. He knows the weight You see, the beauty of the gospel is the help of God. The help of God. Jesus' work becomes your work. Jesus' payment for your sin becomes your payment. Jesus' righteousness and all of his goodness becomes your righteousness. His inheritance, more than you could ever work on your own, becomes your inheritance. Do you know what? If you believe in him, not only is all that given to you, you begin to love the things he loves. You begin to hate the things he hates. You begin to work harder than you could have ever worked without knowing Christ as your savior. And yet you do it with more peace than you should have. Let me ask you, do you have this? Do you have this? Is Jesus your Savior? Is your confidence in God or in yourself? Do you know how you know? Your enemies will tell you. Your enemies will tell you. They will lose their confidence. They'll give up. They they won't look at you And they won't say how strong you must be. They'll look at you and they'll say how strong his God must be. Is that what your enemies are saying? It is finished means Jesus has already won the victory. You, Christian, have just to live in it. Let's pray.